Welcome to the Freemasons Podcast, coming to you live from Morningstar Lodge number 47. Leave your aprons at the door, my brothers. Hello and welcome to the Freemasons Podcast with your hosts, Right Worshipful Brother George Mudry. Worshipful Brother Joe. And Worshipful Brother Ken. He's back. Welcome back, Worshipful Brother Ken. Back in the studio, Ken. baby. And we have an awesome interview today. We have Janet Walter and Alan Butler, who is going to be talking. We're going to, They have a new book out. Uh, Joe, you, was hold, you could hold yep. it up. And it, it is, is uh, America, Nation of the Goddess. It's about the Venus families and the founding of the United States. And uh, Joe has commandeered the book. Yes, I have. <laughs> I commandeered one of the coins. <laughs> there should be one kicking around for Ken here yep. somewhere. Yep. And uh, But we're going to get a little bit into the book. We're going to get a little into Venus. Um, <clears throat> I'm probably at some point going to piss off uh, Brother Scott because I'm going to take get your take, uh, Brother uh, Alan, on the, um, on the Knights Templar in Oak Island and where, <laughs> where, <laughs> where, where you're at with that. Uh, but first, uh, let's start off with uh, the book. What got you guys interested in doing the book, and what are some of the things that you can uh, describe that are in the book that have correlation with uh, the United States? Well, uh, I know that th there was a key word that Alan and I both shared an interest in that got us started, and that word was Grange. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened was, well, Scott met Alan first in filming his show, America on Earth. But then as Alan and I got to know each other, because he's such a great guy, and we were having fun and talking about all this research, and, and one day I said something to him about the Grange organization in the United States. And he said, what? <laughs> right? <laughs> you said, you have something called the Grange in the United States? Because what does that word mean to you, Alan? Well, um, way back in my research, one of the organizations that I came across as being deeply significant historically uh, was a, a monastic order called the Cistercians. Uh, they were uh, formed in the 12th century. Um, they turned out to be extremely important for us. But one of the things about them which made them quite unique was that they arranged their lives in a very different way to other monks. Instead of all staying in the main abbey, they would set up uh, remote farms on land that they'd been given. They called these farms granges. And because of the grange system and because of their superb ability at raising sheep and smelting metal and doing a thousand and one other things, they, they became the most important monastic order uh, of their age and perhaps of any age 
but that was really just the start of the story and I already knew there was something quite unique about the Cistercian Order. So when Jan came up with the word the Grange in association with an organisation in America that I'd never heard of, then my ears pricked up straight away. And that just led to the most incredible adventure. Yeah, that was one of the things that I found really intriguing uh, when I started to go through the book, is because uh, my mother lodge, which is in Easton, Connecticut, used to be the Grange building for Easton, Connecticut. And a lot of the brothers that formed our lodge were members of the Grange. There's a lot of crossover there. And I've always asked a lot of folks about the Grange, and it's kind of... um, it almost feels like a lost organization. It feels like their history isn't as well known. You can go on the internet and find out about the Freemasons, um, but there's not a ton, at least not from what I've looked at. Um, I haven't seen a lot on the Grange, and I thought that was a very interesting connection that you know I've got some personal experience with at my mother lodge. The lodge in my hometown actually is, or up until recently, met in in the Grange building. Oh, wow. Wolcott, Wolcott 146, I think, is the one that was in Wolcott. Yeah, and they were based in that Grange building. I never thought to ask what it was about. Mm. I just figured it was another civic organization. Right. Do you want to tell them, uh, Janet? This is a world authority on the Grange, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. please, That's enlighten important. us. Yeah. No, uh, it, it was an organization that at first, having I live in Minnesota, which is a very agricultural state, and I had heard of the Grange movement, but I always thought it was something... That was an organization for farmers back, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where it was sort of like a, a labor union for, where farmers could organize and and um, work politically and help themselves make deals with transportation types of things, like the railroads. The railroads mm-hmm. were, you know, the way they would get their grain to market. Mm-hmm. So what we we realized was it goes much deeper than that because the founders of the Grange were all Freemasons with the exception of a woman who was the niece of the founder, Oliver Hudson Kelly. And Oliver was tasked after the Civil War by the Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. to go out and figure out in the South how farms were were doing and what help they needed because they wanted to start the economy up again and we needed to find a way to get food into the cities. So all of a sudden farmers had to go from being subsistence farmers to something much more, um, much higher in production to get that food into the cities. So that that's how it all began and Oliver was a northerner and when he went down into the south he struggled with trying to get people to even talk to him but what he found out was that being a freemason many of them were also freemasons that allowed him to reach across the fence lines and get conversations started and uh, they found that these people down there after the war were decimated a lot of the men were killed they needed help and so they organized this fraternity, the Grange, or the Patrons of Husbandry, to help with these families, get them working together, get them organized, and it worked beautifully. And one of the key elements of that was that they allowed women to join as well. And in fact, 40% of the officers have to be women in the Grange. Oh, wow. Hmm. So that was uh, how they got started. 
And the really interesting thing about it is when you really get down to the base, and it's not easy to do, the Grangies more Freemasonic than the Freemasons. <laughs> they, hold right, they hold rites and ceremonies which are not in any way identical to those of Freemasonry, but they're quite clearly closely related. Um, most of those who officiate are female rather than male, and there's a, there was absolutely no doubt in our mind right from the start that when they talked about the great architect of the universe, they didn't call it that, but to them it was always predominantly of a female type, um, and those officiating at the meetings all had the names of goddesses. The same goddess, but in different languages. Um, so we became more and more fascinated, and we found out that um, one of the people who'd started it uh, claimed to have been um, inducted into uh, a particular kind of Freemasonic Lodge in Sicily, uh, which was really, truly ancient, and had to do with what were called the Mysteries of Demeter, which were um, oh. celebrated um, in a place called Eleusis in Greece, long before Christianity came along, and well into the Christian era. So the more we oh. discovered about the Grange, the more we realised that it was much more than a simple self-help group. Wow. Very cool. And in the book, uh, again, it's uh, America, Nation of the Goddess, the Venus family is in the founding of the United States. You specifically, and don't give away too much because we want people to yeah. go buy the book. Just, Just give enough to, uh, to, to pique their interest a bit. But it talks about the Venus families working through the Freemasons and the Order of the Grange uh, in the early formations of America. What, uh, what can you tell us uh, about that? If Janot let me take this one to start with, at least. Um, my research uh, goes right back to um, Stone Age times. A lot of my books are about really, truly ancient history. And I, from that point back in time, for all sorts of reasons, but mainly because of a unit of measurement, uh, which is called the megalithic yard, and which is 2.722 feet in length, mainly because of that measurement, I started to recognise that there was what I described as a golden thread through the tapestry of time. There was a, a group of people who had lots of different names, who turned up in lots of different places, but there was a great commonality about them, and part of that commonality was the ritual use of this particular unit of measurement. But there was a lot more besides. There was always philanthropy. There was always exactly the kind of ethos which you expect uh, from uh, Masonic people. And although it was very difficult to associate one group with another, that's why I called it the golden thread through the tapestry of time, because it kept turning up. And one of its manifestations was Freemasonry. And another one of its manifestations, much later, was the Grange. And we find it and have found it all over the place. Now, these people, another thing which has uh, brought them together, is their absolute reverence for the planet Venus. Venus, of course, is a female deity, so that's part of it. 
But Venus also does some very unique things from a geometric point of view when seen from the Earth. And so their, I suppose you would call it worship, would you call it worship, Janet, awareness, whatever, of of Venus Mm -hmm. uh, is another thing that binds them all together. And that's why we christened them the Venus families. You know, it's just, uh, I I think Janet knows this, but uh, Alan, just for your... uh information you'll find this quite interesting but where we record this podcast out of is morning star lodge number 47 oh wow (laughs) add that to your thread there you go (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we actually just resurrected a charter for a uh, chapter which is also going to be called evening star 47 still venus so still venus Um, and you, so you are aware that Venus has always been thought of as the consort with the sun, the female, as as Alan mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so she, for those of you who are not astronomers, in in the evening, if it's it's it can be a morning star or an evening star, depending on the time of year, mm-hmm. and it will follow the sun in in terms of setting. If it's an evening star. And if it's a morning star, it will proceed, precede the sun. And, and there's a, another interesting fact about it. The unit of measurement I told you about, the megalithic yard, which has been used from at least 4,000 BC onwards, can only be set to its length uh, by means of observation of the planet Venus. It's a, a fiercely complicated uh, thing to do, but you you cannot set the megalithic yard. Well, you can now, of course, because we have accurate measuring sticks and so forth. Mm-hmm. But in, in ancient times, it was impossible. You could only do it by observation and by swinging a pendulum. And when Venus passed between two specific points, while a pendulum swung 366 times, then the length of that pendulum would be one megalithic yard. Wow. <laughs> It's That's just really fascinating. Cool. There's a, there's so much that to uncover here. Now, just a quick question. When you mention the Venus families, is that the same thing? Is that synonymous with the, the star families that we hear about? And I believe Washington's family was uh, one of those families. Is that accurate? Could you explain the star uh, families, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, for our listeners and explain? What- there, are, there are quite a few different versions uh, uh, that people have referred to as the star families. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly have in the past in my association with Christopher Knight because I wrote quite a few books with him. To us, it was exactly the same thing as we now call the Venus families because although Venus is a planet, it's invariably referred to uh, as being a star. Um, and so that's how that came about. Uh, and also uh, with the work that I did with Chris, we were dealing with the same sort of groups of people who arose from time to time, who did certain things which were synonymous with each other. So I would say from my point of view, the star families really are exactly the same as the Venus families. And it's really down to, um, down to my greatest friend uh, and worst enemy, Scott. <laughs> 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 because he decided before we all got together with his research to call them the Venus families. Mm. And because he's much bigger than me and much stronger, <laughs> I didn't argue with him. We went with it, right. And another important 
an important thing about Venus is that it makes a pentagram as viewed from Earth if you track its movement over its eight-year cycle. And that is a very important symbol. Yes. And, and represents much when it comes to the ancient mm-hmm. wisdom that we see throughout history in this golden thread that Alan described. Interesting thing about the, the pentagram is that, you know, I know Catholic Church has demonized it, it's bad and everything, but um, the Seal of Solomon, as we've said before, was mm-hmm. a pentagram. The Order of the Eastern Order Star. Order of the Eastern ah, Star. See, we're body. here again. We're right yep. back here again. We're back. <laughs> the, uh, the Order of the Eastern right. Star. Yep. With regard to the pentagram, um, it's truly, truly ancient. Not far from where I'm sitting now in the north of England, uh, there's a place called Ilkley Moor, and on on that moor, there's a lot of standing stones which were put up there, probably around about 2,500, 3,000 BC, and there are pentagrams actually chiselled onto those. Um, also, the pentagram was quite sacred to Christianity very early on, and as is often the case with organised religion, um, they turned people away from the pentagram, started to call it evil because they wanted to follow their faith in a particular way and wanted everyone to do what they wanted to do. So the pentagram took on uh, a lot of um, evil associations, which it never once had. Mm -hmm. And it quite clearly is associated with Venus, and Venus has been important long before anybody said anything bad about the pentagram so it's kind of like a modern affectation really and of course it became associated with witchcraft and sorcery and all the rest of it mainly i suppose because people who used it were special in some way and were different in some way and orthodox religions don't like special or different they definitely don't they right. tend to burn people like that mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. speak of burning i would uh, i know you're very deep into the templars and their mythology and everything about them uh you have been to rosalind chapel i would assume correct oh absolutely uh, yes. i've seen you on practically many... lived there yeah. he's written some books about it too yep. yeah i've got some books about it yeah amazing place mm-hmm. so one uh, of the what for any of your listeners who haven't been there, mm-hmm. if ever we're allowed to travel again, they definitely should go. Mm-hmm. I would love to go there. Yeah, I, that's on one of my that's one of my bucket list places. Absolutely. Um, but I I just want to say one of the things that I found interesting, and I did a little bit of my own little research. You know, again, I'm no professional. I'm an amateur. Just you know. But one of the things I found interesting in tying Freemasonry with the Templars is that one of the things, one of the first recorded meetings occurred in and i'm going to butcher this name and i'm going to get picked on for it and alan you can fix it if i mess it up but edinburgh can't be fixed edinburgh sorry edinburgh Edinburgh? yeah edinburgh right edinburgh edinburgh i do this every time i've already got yelled at by my own friends for butchering it before so and it was uh ironically a scottish man listen for all i know that may have been the original pronunciation True. true. See, that's true. Um, But one of the things I found was interesting is that there's actually uh, recordings talking about masonry coming out of Edinburgh, but then right next door is the Rosalind Chapel, an area called Templar Wood, and I just find it very interesting that the the first type of recordings that they have of Masonic 
I guess you'd say conversation talking about Freemasonry yeah. is in that same area where the Templars mm-hmm. supposedly took off to. Yes, and that's very true. And not only that, but the same people who in the streets of uh, Edinburgh were talking about Freemasonry, particularly during the, it goes back a lot longer, of course, but particularly during the 17th century mm-hmm. when Freemasons were starting to look at science and oh. we're starting to, to have a big part to play uh, in the way the infrastructure of society was being run. Those same people who were doing that were the same people who were regularly visiting oh. Rosslyn Chapel. Um, and I worked with an amazing man, the late John Ritchie, who was brought up in the village of Rosslyn and with whom I cooperated in two books on the chapel. And we discovered eventually that um, we couldn't absolutely prove it. Um, And a lot of that is to do with the people who run the chapel these days. But we were quite convinced that particular Masonic ceremonies had been held in the chapel going back an awful long time. In the end, it all comes back down to architecture and measurement uh, and astronomy, the same as everything else in our work ultimately comes down to. Um, but on the roof at one end, there is a place which we became absolutely certain was where the rituals had been held. And it was the self and same people who were really pushing Freemasonry in Edinburgh. Wow. Blood absolutely drink. fascinating. And it's, um, you know, we talked a little bit about Rosslyn Chapel here, um, which we probably can't get to anytime soon. However, there's something a lot closer to us right in New York City, which is St. Paul's Chapel, which is considered the counterpart to Roslyn Chapel. Really? And that's uh, that's in the book here. Janet, can you expand on that a little bit and, and tell us a yeah. little bit about the significance of St. Paul's Chapel? Yes, I've been there a couple of times, and uh, it's amazing because it has withstood so much. And it's the oldest continuously used um, temple or church in the city of New York, going back to the Revolution times. And uh, it's a small little little chapel, but some big names have attended there, including George Washington, who went there after his inaugural speech to pray, uh, Ben Franklin, and La Enfant. Jefferson's been there. Wow. Yeah, Jefferson, right. And Lon Font designed the glory over the altar oh, in wow. the chapel, which is an amazing piece of work in itself. Lon Font is the same um, architect who designed Washington, the base D. of Washington, D.C. Yep. Also a mason, if I recall. And, yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. And uh, what we found was that, um, well, it was in conjunction with working with the production team for America on Earth, they came to Scott and I because they wanted to do a story on obelisks on America on Earth. And so we started looking into that with them, and one of them found that there was an article written recently in the last 10 years that there is a, seems to be a straight line that is formed by three obelisks within Manhattan. Wow. And they were looking into that and so i was looking at it and i looked at it on i was looking at it on google earth and drawing some lines and things and i realized that it wasn't quite a straight line 
there was a little dog leg in it mm. in the middle very which was, very similar to another structure yes yep. which was the worth obelisk and then the the third obelisk there's one in saint paul's chapel's churchyard and there's another one that's in central park which is a real egyptian obelisk mm -hmm. called cleopatra's needle yep. i don't know if you are all are aware that we have one in this country i, I did i have yep. seen that before yep. yes mm -hmm. they're actually okay. working to it's fix right it up right the yep they're working to fix it up right it's it was kind of in disrepair for a while right yes Last they did do do that they completed oh, they did. Okay. that as far as i know um and there's, it was really matching one in london yes the matching one is in london as mm -hmm. you know most obelisks were placed in pairs in mm -hmm. egypt at the british and museum um, no, it's on the banks of the Thames. On the Thames, oh, really? On the Thames embankment. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, but what we realized, and I, I called Alan and talked to him about this because he's the uh, astronomy guru. <laughs> what we realized was that these three obelisks were placed in exactly the same manner as the belt stars of Orion's belt appear in the sky. Huh. Wow. Which is the same alignment as the pyramids in Giza. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And this was this was a particular interest to me also, because again, not far from where I'm speaking to you from now, there are three giant henges. Now, a henge is a, a circular uh, ditch with a bank, mm -hmm. um, which we know that our ancient ancestors used for some purpose, though we're never being exactly sure what they used them for. But there are three particularly big ones not far from here, which are called the Thornborough Henges. And they are massive. They are truly massive. They stretch, the three of them, over a mile and a half in, in length. And they, too, form the same pattern. And in the case of each, the pyramids, uh, Thornborough Henge, and Janet, Janet's discovery in New York... If you are to take um, uh, a snapshot of Orion's belt and if you are to bring it uniformly down to the right size and down to earth, it fits all three of those structures absolutely perfectly. Hmm. And that's extremely unlikely because the dogleg in these three stars hardly is there at all. If you see it in the sky, it's almost impossible you to see the You can barely see it, yeah. But, yeah, but it is there. And it's reflected in all three of those series of structures. So I'm guessing the henges in the pyramids at Giza, well, obviously the pyramids at Giza were constructed at different times, right? But yeah, yeah. They, they... the henge was uh, constructed about a thousand years before the pyramids in Egypt. That's okay. how old they are. Do, do but we... okay. Chris and I were able to show that the one definitely came from the other. So the people at Thornborough, were the mathematicians who laid out the pattern for the pyramids. Mm -hmm. mm. Interesting. Oh, so what about those, the, the obelisks that are in Manhattan? What do we know about when those were constructed? Like, was there, did they know what they were doing when they were being emplaced? Or was it like, you know, one was added 100 years after the first? Um, they were, the first one was in St. Paul's Chapel. So that was the oldest placement and that would have been probably in the late 1700s. I can't remember the exact date now. Mm. And then the next one was the Worth Obelisk, which was General Worth. Um, I believe that was from the 
the war with the Mexicans down in Texas, and mm -hmm. he was actually buried under there. There's wow. nobody buried in the one in St. Paul's churchyard, so why is it there? Right. Mm. So there yeah, was so, there was probably some the, purpose the behind all this. The final one, right. which was the most important, was Cleopatra's Needle, and that was brought over by Freemason William Vanderbilt, the railroad tycoon. Mm. And because he paid for it to come over from Egypt aboard a ship, which is an uh, amazing accomplishment mm -hmm. in itself, mm. um, he was given the honor of placing it, is uh, how the story goes. Okay. And he knew right where to put it. Mm -hmm. we, we, we have a, a policy in that we never deal in time in the sense that um, the three structures may have been put there at different times. Mm -hmm. But we know we are dealing with people here to whom time, the passage of time, is an absolute irrelevance. Right. Well, if they want to do something, they don't care if it takes ten generations. They will do it. And you know, what I find funny, too, is that it's almost like they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to teach a lesson or something involved with it. Because why would you do this over time and repeat things such well, as Orion's Belt? I mean, to have two ob obelisks, at, you know, at two ends of a line, it's just uh -huh. it's just two obelisks, right? Right. But uh, it's adding that third one. Yes. That and that's where the symbol comes. And from. why do they keep referencing Orion's Belt? Time and time again. I mean, mm. you see it in uh, what's the the city down there in uh, Mexico, Teotihuacan or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Am, am I right? Yeah. Am I right yeah. on yeah. that? Yeah. Yes. And I said it properly too. You proud is, of me? <laughs> that's why I was taken aback. Than I could do. <laughs> but you you see, and that that also is aligned to Orion's Belt. So it's just it's very interesting and why they keep coming back to certain things. Venus, Orion's Belt. Right. It's almost like they're trying to. Uh, at least in my opinion, where they're almost waiting for a certain alignment of Venus and Orion to meet. And at that particular moment in time, something's going to happen. I, I don't know. It's just maybe that's just me. Yeah, there's something know, to it. We do know part of that story. Okay. Um, there are uh, three pyramids in Egypt, not the three we've been talking about, uh -huh. three older ones, um, which have script all the way along the inside of them, which are ritual prayers for the dead. And we know from some of the information there that the Egyptians believed that when somebody died, they went in a boat mm -hmm. down the Nile. Uh -huh. um, and they did it at a time when the Milky Way, that great band of phosphorescent stars across the sky, uh -huh. when it was making contact with the Nile at the furthest point they could see it. So they said, they called it actually... Um, the Milky Way, they called it the Nile in the sky. And they believed that when they died, they went in this boat down the Nile, and then they sailed up the Milky Way to Orion's Belt, which is virtually on the Milky Way. And that's where they believed they would live their afterlife, where they would be transmuted, where they would be changed, wow. so that part of them could come back to Earth, but a part of them would stay. So it was a magical part of the sky as far as they were concerned. Right, wow. and and so Orion to the Egyptians was Osiris, who was the god of resurrection. Yeah, I mean he was the big daddy, was Osiris, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Him and Ra. It, it was the player. And I've always seen that connection between Orion's belt because it, it's pretty prominent that it's the three stars and the oh, yeah. reverence I mean, for the Freemasons for the right. number three in Freemasonry and mm. a lot of the ancient mysteries. 
Yeah, I'm, I believe Orion is visible throughout you know the entire ancient world too, northern mm-hmm. and southern yeah. hemisphere, yeah. at least at a certain point of of you know the year. So ancient yes. peoples would look at this prominent thing in the sky, and sh- surely they would attribute some kind of meaning to it. But there's also truth in what you were saying a minute ago about us not exactly knowing, because Janet and I would both admit that we found Orion's belt to be so important. It's far more important than it ought to be from a visual point of view, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay, so it's impressive. Okay, so it's beautiful. But there are far more impressive and beautiful things in the sky. Mm-hmm. So why everybody thought that was so amazing, mm-hmm. to be quite honest, at the end of the day, we still don't exactly know. Mm-hmm. So we got a question for you. Uh, Brother Rocco Affanzetti asks, does Orion's belt fit in the Fibonacci sequence? I don't know. Uh, um, I don't think so. No. Yeah, You'd have to associate it with something else. Um, certainly the, the gap between um, the top star and the middle star and the cap, gap between the middle star and the bottom star is almost identical. And, of course, three hmm. is associated with the Fibonacci series right. with it being such a low number. But mm-hmm. I don't think there is a direct connection. But um, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought- mean, we should double check that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know he. So that's why I related oh, to Brother it. Rocco loves the Fibonacci sequence, that's a great the spiral like that's his thing. So <laughs> well, I, I totally love it too. It. Yeah, but uh, you had mentioned the the Vanderbilt um, as far as bringing yeah. the obelisk over from Egypt. Uh, am I incorrect to assume that they are one of the Venus families? Well, it appears to be so. I mean, they hmm. they were part of this. We don't have something where we can go and look up a family name and say. Hmm. Oh, yes, they are absolutely a Venus family. Although, it, it's more based on what did they do. Okay. You know, these terrible Venus family people never wrote their names down in a book. <laughs> How, why, didn't they know we would want to know these things? Like, exactly. how could they not? Exactly. But there are but, certain but, prominent families that you, you almost would, based on their actions... Would assume. I know Washington has assumed uh, his family is one of them. The Astors, which are very prominent in New York, are always yes. rumored to be one of those families as well. It's usually the the families that ended up with a crap ton of money. Yeah, um, we've, always, <laughs> we've always judged that it may not be on every occasion that the person we were looking at was a direct member of the Venus families, mm. but they certainly knew someone who was. Right. Uh, and, and were affected by someone who was. Um, and we would get that happening all the time, especially with um, FDR, who yep. we are uh, quite yes. sure was uh, a Venus family member. He seemed to influence all sorts of other people in government circles who probably weren't. But I suppose if you've got enough power, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, also, you know, I got two points of, of order I just want to make, but FDR also had the Russian guy who was his guru, and he kind of was coaching FDR in a sense, right? I can't remember his name. It's Nikolai something or whatever. Mm, but his mentor. He was his mentor, right? And he was all in astrology and all that stuff. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to point out is that it's the other problem you're going to have with, uh, I guess, in your research. You can maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but trying to find out all these things, such as you know Venus families or you know, um, 
Freemasonry back then was much different than it is today. And yeah. these people, you know, if they were Freemasons or even if they were part of this, you know, quiet organization, VIP Templars or whatever, they were very secretive. So the last thing they did was write anything down. Right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until modern times and now, you know, modern day, we're on podcasts and stuff. But the ancient Templars and the ancient, you know, people, they didn't, they didn't want any recognition. They didn't want their names on anything. And, you know, even in Freemasonry today, we teach, you know, it's, we just did the episode. Mm-hmm. Last yeah, week about that. the good of the order, mm-hmm. you know everything. You know it, it's not about individual right for the benefit of the craft as a yes. whole and for society as a whole. That ancient policy of secret keeping is still alive yes. and well in Freemasonry today, even though we're a little bit more you know Open. vocal about our membership in the fraternity. Is this some of the issues that you run into in in in, in terms of that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, sorry, Janet. Um, oh, go ahead. Um, and it's much harder here in the UK than it is over there ah. in the States. I found out much more about Freemasonry in the States than I've ever been able to find out in my own home country, mm. where they are much more guarded. Um, so, yes, it's difficult, but we have to... Uh, the internet has helped us a great deal mm-hmm. because we've been able to get hold of a lot of material which we know is genuine, but which Freemasonry itself has never published. And that might seem an unscrupulous thing for us to do, but you've got to get information where you can find it. And we only we only ever use it if it confirms other things uh, that, that we've discovered. So we prize open as many doors and windows as we can, but there's still an awful lot of the building that we don't understand. Right. Uh, mostly what Alan and I ended up doing was just following a trail where we got to the point where we were able to start to recognize that this thing or this place could be a sign that the Venus families were at work here at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's where most of our, our discoveries were made just by observing things. Yes. And one, I- of those, one of those things was, you mentioned the Vanderbilts, um, Grand Central Station in in Manhattan was built by that family. Mm -hmm. And one of the quirky things that has always bothered people, especially scientists and astronomers, is that the beautiful ceiling that is painted in Grand Central Station of the constellations, there's one that is backwards Ah. and seems to be incorrect. And has the ceiling has been repainted multiple times. It's never been fixed, and if you ask a Vanderbilt, the, the legend is that they always would say it's perfectly correct, <laughs> and that, that <laughs> Orion, it's Orion that's backwards. Yes, uh, I have heard backwards. about that Early before. Orion. The other thing I would say about research, particularly with regard to Freemasonry, hmm. uh, one thing I learned a long time ago, and it's as true in America as it is here: no Freemason tells lies. So. I ask questions. Now, Freemasons may not tell me the truth, but <laughs> well, we're not going to lie to you yeah. either. Yeah. And it's finding the difference between the two, which oh. is so important. <laughs> Those loose-lipped Americans they tell you everything you want to know about Freemasonry. Well, now, see, that's just <laughs> no, the thing. In fact, in fact, you don't. You don't. Yeah. You just don't tell lies. Yep. No, we don't tell guys. When they ask, oh, what do Freemasons do? We make good men better. We, yeah, we, 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 <laughs> we do, in fact, do that. It might we, sound like an obfuscation, <laughs> but that's what we do. That's that's the old that's the old brush off yeah, right exactly. there. Yeah, we make good men better. That's what we do. It's 
not a lie. <laughs> so one other question I had uh, in regards to the book, and again, I'll, I'll hold it up here. And uh, it's America, Nation of the Goddess, the Venus Families and the Founding of the United States by Al Butler and Janet Walter. Uh, you talk a lot about, um, well, you come to a conclusion how most cities in the United States actually have a, a temple to the goddess in plain sight. And you get into uh, baseball diamonds. And I do believe that Abner Doubleday, I'm fairly certain he was a Freemason. Um, who He invented baseball. And it's funny how some of those measurements seem to be absolutely perfect when you come to all those close plays at first base. And if it were five feet longer, it wouldn't be. The game wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same. So tell us a little bit about uh, your conclusion and your theories as far as uh, baseball diamonds and as they relate to uh, the goddess Venus. Jonna? One of the things is that if you just look at it from above, it has a resemblance to a square and compass. Ah. But there is also many of the the numerology aspects of baseball. You know, the, the, the relative dimensions uh, <laughs> of the diamond, um, a lot of the apparent rules to do with uh, baseball, um, the folklore associated with baseball um the whole thing is just riddled with goddess awareness in a way that most people would say well that's absolutely absurd especially when you hear some of the language but it isn't ridiculous it's absolutely true a baseball diamond is about as ancient as stonehenge Right, the diamond shape has always been associated with the goddess, and you, you know, like I was saying, you have, you know, three strikes. Three times three is nine. Nine innings, mm-hmm. uh, four balls, a square. Well, I mean, all these, all these things come into play that, that appear to be related to not only free, Freemasonry but a careful veiling of the goddess ideology as well well can't you even go uh for the the distance between the bases as well isn't what is it 90 feet or something like that what's the yeah yeah i've got the notes somewhere um all these numbers you know yeah look it up in our book for us that distance is significant and another thing that's truly significant probably the holiest and most significant place in the United States from the point of view of our research is the Ellipse, which is a park just south of the White House in Washington, D.C. Really? Now, that's important to us for a whole host of reasons, but it's interesting to note that for many, many years, it, it carried not one, but six baseball diamonds, and they were there for decades and wow. decades and most yeah, people would that. see that as well well it's a park that people go there to play baseball we saw something much more significant in that wow and kept open it doesn't have buildings on it it's never been i mean it's i'm sure it's very expensive real estate right they've never built on right it. right and mm-hmm. we know why now and and i'm sure if you had a chance to look at the book you will see that um, the Washington Monument plays a major role in what happens around the National Mall, including with the ellipse. Uh. And that is its shadow. 
I was just going to, so, I was going to ask about the shadow. Okay. You beat me to it. No, go ahead. Okay. Well, go, okay. So the, the, the shadow of the monument is very pronounced if you see it on a sunny day from above. And what we learned is not only does it on a given day, you could tell time with it if you knew how to do that and read the sun. But throughout the year, the shadow length changes as the sun moves around in the sky and is at higher and lower elevation. So what we realized is that that shadow was designed to point to things around the National Mall on certain key dates, and it, we were blown away. The ellipse is one of them, but the most obvious one that, Alan, you discovered this first, and then we've discovered the rest since then, but tell them about what happens in September. In September, on the day on which the Constitution of the United States was signed, um, if you were to stand on the mall at dawn, uh, when the sun came up, uh, no, no, sorry, in this case, it's when the sun goes down, mm -hmm. you would find the shadow of the um, monument, the point of it would exactly touch the doors of the Capitol building um, as the sun went down. Uh, but it only does it on two days in the year, that one in September and one in March. And both of those days are significant for other reasons. Um, when the Constitution was signed, they, the guys there in Pennsylvania, they waited for weeks and weeks to sign it until all the delegates were getting really fed up and saying, come on, we need to go home. We can't stay indefinitely. They obviously delayed it for a reason, and that was so that they could get it signed on this particular day, which was also the day on which the festival in Eleusis in Greece was held for Demeter. Wow. So it was the mysteries of Demeter. And so we knew there was a connection between the two. And the other day on the year when this phenomena happens in Washington is the day of the death of a god called Attis, who was extremely significant and was also a god of the mysteries. Now, these are only just two days in the year. But, for example, the shadow of the monument touches the western side of the World War II memorial on VE Day. It touches the other side on VJ Day. Jesus. The howl of the mall in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. was designed and skewed very slightly south of north on the western end in order to allow these things to happen. And the Washington Monument had to be an exact specific height and placed in a very uh, significant place. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Washington Monument was moved from the place where they were originally going to put it, clearly for the reasons that I've just mentioned. Uh -huh. But when asked why this was the case, somebody said the ground wasn't very secure. Yeah, they blamed uh, it on it being a, marsh, a marshy area or something like that's that. Right. Uh -huh. That's right. Wow. We had a professional look at that, and he said the ground had never been any different where it is now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're nice. going to put it. But They're that precision it was important. From a mathematical viewpoint, it, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have worked otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's right. And remember, they weren't doing this with a computer. Right. Yeah, that fascinates right. me. I think the most amazing thing of all is how they were able to do this. is stunning. But we've, uh, had, we've had people who wrote to us and said, we don't believe this. This is absolute nonsense. But who then went to Washington 
and saw it for themselves as Janet did. I was so envious when Janet mm. stood there and saw the sun on the top of the point of the monument, which is another thing that it does mm -hmm. on, on these specific days. And there's a picture of it in our book. And the picture's not doctored. It's absolutely as Janet took it. Wow. Right. And it, it, and it looks like it's the moon on top of the obelisk, but it was a partly cloudy day. And just the way we caught it sitting up there was because of the clouds. And it, it was really amazing. So Alan had told me where the shadow point should fall on a day that was a few days before the winter solstice. And I was standing there trying to figure out where the shadow was, but it was hard to see that day. But I could tell I was in the right place because I could see the sun up on top of the monument, and that's where the shadow tip should be. So we had to go out in the field because my scientist husband said, you guys can't just do all this based on computer models. You have to get out there and prove it in the field. And I'm like, well, you're right. Come on, let's go. Because Alan couldn't go right then. It was too close to Christmas, and yeah. it just didn't work out. But Scott and I went, and we saw it, and it was amazing. So yet shadow was creeping toward the ellipse, right wow. where it was supposed to be, based on the computer modeling. And Alan, tell him what happens on the winter solstice. When it grazes the um, ellipse... Yes, when it grazes the ellipse. Yeah. The, the, the ellipse, all of this is to do with birth and death and rebirth. Everything that we've discovered comes down to that at the end of the day. And, and quite often when you get um, an ellipse uh, in the language of these people, it can represent the egg, the, the divine egg, but also the female egg. And... When everything is reborn at the winter solstice, which is in December, then the ancient people used to believe that that the sun was reborn and that nature was reborn and that everything would be okay again. Well, in Washington on that day, the point of the shadow of the uh, monument touches the southern entrance of the ellipse, the ellipse itself representing uh, the, the, the egg, the cosmo cosmological egg and the female egg and it penetrates into that and then it passes away again and it's just such wonderful, wonderful symbolism and nobody, uh, nobody knows or nobody knows any of this well, obviously some people do, <laughs> but, it's do. but it's certainly not common knowledge mm -hmm. and Every time we came across another alignment, and this went on for weeks, Janet, didn't it? Yes. We were, we were stunned at all this going on, this wonderful theatre happening all year round, and yet everybody else thinks it's something entirely different. Mm, right. Right. And, and, it, and people know to this day, because that World War II monument was only built in 2006. Mm. So yeah. somebody... Still some has their hands on it. Yeah, somebody's paying still. attention. But even before the World War II monument was built, someone had placed, well, it was like a, a little pond there, wasn't it? Someone had placed an ornamental pond there to reserve the ground mm -hmm. because that's exactly where the World War II monument was ultimately built. 
Right. So, right. I mean, Joe, the precision in mathematics is incredible. I just, is. I just have one thing I just want to just add. But Joe, maybe you could you just uh, somebody asked what the uh, Kenny Stillwell asked. What's the name of the book? Okay. Oh, the book again is uh, America, Nation of the Goddess, The Venus Families and the Founding of the United States by Alan Butner, Butler and Janet Walter. And uh, you were passing around the book, Joe, and you sh- you showed the picture that Janet had taken of that particular moment in time where you caught it, where it was the sun, correct? It was the sun of the moon. Yeah, it was the, the sun, uh, the sun on top the sun. of the Washington Monument. Right on top of the Washington Monument. And yeah. the, the minute Joe flashed me the picture that you had taken, the first thing that popped in my head was, that looks like it came out of Egypt. Yeah. That looks right. Well, obelisks. Man. No, but I'm saying, like, yeah. you see, like, you know, hieroglyphs. Like in a, in a, uh, Hieroglyph or a Hieroglyph, stone carving, yes. or stone carving like of yeah. a very similar um, image, I guess you could say. That was pretty. We, yeah, we think we think that the people who designed Washington got the idea from a church uh, in Paris called Saint Sulpice, where oh, wow. there is a similar device. But there's no doubt that in the case of Saint Sulpice, it came from Egypt. So ultimately, it's Egyptian. Wow. Yeah, and there, there's all kind of fascinating pictures and, and diagrams in the book here. And uh, my first inclination was to show them up on the camera here, but I want people to actually go buy your book. Yeah. Yep. So if well. you want to, if you want to <laughs> see those things and and learn more about this, again, go buy the book. It's uh, America, Nation of the Goddess, the Venus Families, and the Founding of the United States. And Janet, where can you find this book if you're looking for it? Well, it was, it was published by Inner Traditions or Destiny Books. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm sure it's on all the major major outlets. Okay, so it's so. not hard to find. You don't got to buy it from a specific site, or no, I, mean, I know we can't go to Barnes. What benefits? What, online. What benefits yeah, you guys right. the most? You know, everybody goes right. to these big box mm-hmm. stores, but what, what's the place? Uh, is there a benefit for going directly to the publisher? Website or? If you would like one signed, if you buy it mm. through the website that Scott and I have, it's www hookedx h-o-o-k-e-d-x dot com and anything that comes through there we sign the books awesome awesome very yes which cool. we received our signed copy earlier this week so yes, thank you very did. much for that wrapped in the, the vikings cool. newspaper <laughs> yeah we, we noticed that he wrapped it in the sports section with Thanks, the vikings Scott. new players on there we, we noticed that yeah. Good. Well, you know, he's got his Viking stuff down here. I'm in his lair in the basement. <laughs> uh, Mason's cool. busting each he's other's got, stones. He's got no his bones. beautiful agates behind me, but he's also got this. <laughs> What's the S-K-O-L or S-K-D? Oh, skull. That's their oh, little uh, clap skull. thing. Very, very, oh. Uh, oh. And yeah. uh, it's like some it's, kind it's of Viking noise. <laughs> a beer? Oh, that's how you... It's a lager, skull lager. Yeah, well, that's what it is. You oh. know, it's all, it's all fun. But we also have Corona, which is a bit unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, you brought up beer, and I wasn't going to ask. I've been toying with whether or not I wanted to ask you this because if it falls flat, then I'm going to look like an idiot, and George will have to some more editing to do. No, I'll leave it. But alone. when you were talking about the monolithic yard, megalithic, I, megalithic, megalithic. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, no, no, it's fine. I vaguely remember seeing you on a show relating that unit of measurement to a pint of beer. Does that does my memory serve me correctly? 
Your memory serves you perfect. Okay. Oh. Tell us a little, we love beer, so tell us a little bit about that if you can. The, the megalithic yard turned out to be something much more than a linear measurement. It, it's the basis of all the measurements that we and uh, you in the United States and we until very recently here in the UK used, which over here we call the imperial system. Uh, you probably call it the American system. Hmm. But um, Standard. Uh, pounds Standard. and pints and hundredweights and barrels and all of the measurements. Stones. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, stones, yeah. yeah. All derived from the megalithic yard via barley seeds. If you stretch oh. barley seeds end-to-end -end along the megalithic yard, you end up with uh, 3,600 barley seeds. Now, that sounds ridiculous, because you might say to me, well, one barley seed is going to be a different size to another. But on average, it always works out, and we've done it so many times, that we got sick and tired of barley seeds. <laughs> and it always worked out in the end to within half a barley seed. Wow. Now, if you take a proportion of those barley seeds and weigh them, in this case, one-fifth of them, um, then you get the smallest unit of imperial volume measurement. So the pound is of that ilk, and so is the pint. Not your pint, unfortunately, our pint. Right, your yeah. proper imperial pint, pint, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have to be the only. I somehow got smaller. Yeah. See, I but knew we could get this back to beer at some point. <laughs> I, I knew we could do that. Americans trying to get their. I have to be the only American who, who who hates the standard American system, or whatever. I hate it. Drives me nuts. Sorry, give me a three quarter wrench. How about just saying like fifteen millimeter? Give like, me a ten millimeter. It's you know nine millimeter, yeah. ten millimeter, eleven. Ten millimeter. I hated it as a mechanic. Missing. I hated it. Yeah, if I take an English pint glass. As I say, not an American one, unfortunately, anymore. But if I take an English pint glass, of which I have many examples, <laughs> then and you fill it with barley seeds, and then you take those barley seeds and weigh them, you will find that they weigh exactly one pound. Wow. Hmm. So they, cool. they put everything all of these... Is, everything at the end of the day is down to barley seeds. Who rules oh. barley seeds? Janet? The yeah. goddess. Ah, 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 there you go. They're very cool. Agriculture and astronomy. Mm -hmm. That's what we found that these, all these threads always go back to that. Hence the Grange and all the goddess names in the Grange. Right. Whoever started that knew exactly what they were doing. They did an awful lot of good on the way. It must be one of the greatest organizations the world has ever known, and yet hardly anybody knows anything about it. Yeah, I mean, that was foundational. We wouldn't have had cities, It was essentially right? Freemasonic, but it was dedicated lock, stock, and barrel to the goddess. Hmm. Hmm. And you know, Grange means grain. Mm. Yeah. Grange and grain are synonymous. Yeah, and at the founding of our country, we were absolutely an agricultural society. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about Can't that. Can't have cities without some way of getting that production up and then getting the results of that production into the city where people can consume it and you can have skyscrapers full of people. Right. There was a lot of arguments early on, wasn't there? Because Jefferson, in particular, wanted to keep it that way. He, he mm. didn't want a big industrial country. Mm. He wanted small farmers. There was a lot of arguments back then. People doing duels, get shot, stuff. Over <laughs> <there>. <laughs> it's happening all the time. Yeah. Um, 
So I want to ask you about your, I want to go back to the Rosalind Chapel, if I may, and uh, I would love to know what's down, because I, I believe, uh, I watched on a show, or I heard something along the lines of there's actually uh, catacombs or tombs or spaces underneath um, Rosalind Chapel. There was a company who tried kind of cross-drilling underneath <laughs> and got caught at it in the uh the government shut them down quick, but I would love to know. That's one of the things I would love to know is what's down in the base in the downstairs catacombs of Rosalind Chapel. Well, strangely enough, the American Army had a go at one time, uh, and uh, I think really? they were politely told that allies though we were, <laughs> we were not to dig holes in the grounds of <laughs> Rosalind Chapel. But um, the, there is definitely a tunnel which leads from underneath Rosalind Chapel to a place nearby called Rosslyn Castle. Mm. Um, and there are almost certainly um, other tunnels under there as well. Nobody is allowed access. And now that ground penetrating radar is so good, mm. nobody's allowed to do that on the land either. Wow. In the days when it was a bit cranky, they occasionally let people on and they, they kind of found the ghost of of these tunnels but they would be able to find them for certain now but nobody will let them so why try. do you think that is why do you think that is that they won't let anybody in there i know the building is very old and unstable and and they're worried about digging underneath it and you know yeah but gpr shouldn't basically undermine it but yeah G strangely, strangely enough it's nothing to do with that um an awful lot of money was earned by the trustees of the chapel hmm. uh, allowing them to use it for films like um Dan Brown's film and so mm -hmm. forth. Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of that money was put to good use in terms of rebuilding the roof of the chapel and mm -hmm. making sure that it, it, it was good and sound. But unfortunately, the trustees who are there now, good people though they are, every one of them, their religion prevents them from being able to see Rosslyn Chapel in terms of anything other than a normal Christian church. Mm -hmm. and, and so therefore, and it's their business because they're the trustees, right, yeah. uh, they won't even let me in the place anymore oh, to talk. Jesus. I can go in, you know, and I can go in and pray, mm. but to talk to a group of people... Um, You've had to do it out. They wouldn't let me talk to Oak Island in there. They wouldn't let me talk to... Wow. Well, oh, that's a sacred uh, space to them. Makes sense. Um, well, can you blame them? No. No. <laughs> no. no. Their heart's in the right place. And I love them all to bits, and I don't blame them, but they have their beliefs, and we have our research, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, well, they don't always converge. No, it's, it's very different. I mean, it's a, it's a very ancient faith that carefully veils the goddess, but yeah. it's, she's always there. Yeah. And um, if you look for her, you can find her, including in Freemasonry. Yeah. One of the things I, I seen, uh, we had some, we had a, a guy come to one of our lodges a long time ago, and he showed, I guess it's on the outside of the building, but it looks like a, uh, I guess you would say a, a monk or a, um, a priest. Clergyman. Clergyman, I guess you would say. And he's got a, you could see the cross on his chest, and he's got a noose around a man's neck yeah. while he's oh holding. definitely yeah and yeah. i mean that's, is, that's in, right in on, this building in the right stone? on the outside of the stone really? of the rosalind chapel oh, of, Rosalind which, chapel, of right. which i found absolutely fascinating like that's i mean we we, we know mm -hmm. 
some, we'll leave that there. I, lo- <laughs> I love Ken Sitt. Mm-hmm. There, are, yeah. there are other examples as well, which I won't mention while we're talking publicly, but there are other things which you guys would recognize straight away. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to go there. And the architecture of that building is just stupendous. Like, it's a beautiful, beautiful work of art in addition it's to stra- being a very It's strange, place. isn't it? That it's full of Freemasonic symbolism. Oh, yeah. But it was built in the 15th century. Mm-hmm. Right. And according to the British authorities, Freemasonry didn't start until the 18th century. So somebody's got something wrong somewhere. Yep. <laughs> so we're gonna take uh, we're gonna take one more question from one of our uh, listeners, uh, and then I would to if Jan, if you want to bring Scott in, because oh, I really sure. I want to have I'm a, a I want to have a go with him at the uh, the Oak Island thing. So I'm gonna ask Alan what his uh, <laughs> Oak Island lightning round. <laughs> You'll just love that. Yeah, we'll make sure he's present so he can get fired up. Mm-hmm. Don't make me say anything about Oak Island. They haven't paid me yet. Hey. <laughs> Still waiting on If he wants the jacket, we're going to make him earn it. We'll take bets on how long it takes for him to, to jump in and say something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do, direct so, it to Alan, but see how long it takes Scott to jump in. So Adam okay, Stoddard. Yeah. We'll see if he can if he can hold on. <laughs> Adam Stoddard asks, uh, any Knights Templar stuff in D.C. that you guys have researched? It's nice. very... Yeah, it's very difficult to specifically pin anything down. Uh, there is no statuary, for example, which can be directly attributable to the Templars. But the main themes of the um, of the architecture and of the numbers um, tell us that the Knights Templar were of the Venus families, and whoever planned and built Washington, D.C., was also of the Venus families. So it's back to this golden thread through the tapestry of time, in a way. Right. We know they were associated, but we haven't found anything which you could say directly looks like the Knights Templar. But insofar as most of us believe there is a connection between the Knights Templar and Freemasonry, and Janet and I are quite convinced there is a connection between Freemasonry and the centre of Washington, D.C., then there is a kind of indirect, direct connection, if you see what I mean. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I would agree with you, Mr. Butler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Hey, Brother Scott, how are you doing? How nice to see you. I, I, I wanted to wait until Alan paused for half a second that I jumped in. <laughs> we once, we uh, Scott and I once did um, a piece to camera here in uh, Great Britain at a place called Shrugborough Hall. Yeah. Mm. We talked for so long between us that the cameraman virtually collapsed onto the ground. When <laughs> <laughs> I went for 25 minutes straight, yeah. they timed us and they just held the cameras. They didn't want to stop because, of course, what we were saying was so wonderful. Mm. And then when one of us. <laughs> And then when one of us took a breath, they all went, cut, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know... I think, I think it was Alan that took the breath, not me. Uh-huh. Now, when you have so much like information and knowledge you're trying to get out, and sometimes you get on a roll. And it's exciting, it just too. Like, you get excited about this Yeah, you get excited. Yeah, especially with something you're passionate about. Yeah. So it can happen. That's exactly what happened that day. Yeah, we were just so into what we were looking at. Mm. It's like and if you get me started so, on Star Wars. They were so fascinated. The only man who suffered was the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They get paid just fine. I'm not worried about. Yeah, it. <laughs> he can take one for the team. It's worth it. 
<laughs> That's funny. Uh, it was a that was really Alan one of the highlights for me, um, for America on Earth. In in forty nine episodes, that one is right up there at the top. Not just because of Shugborough, but because mm. of uh, the time spent with you it was just amazing. And all the bears got. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what I always want to see. I mean, if you're going to do America on Earth, you guys got to do like the the behind the scenes thing where you guys are like at the an pub, after hours, right? Like an after hours, right? Yeah. At the pub, hanging out. That's what I want to see. Yeah. Do you uh, know what this? Do you know what this jerk did to me? Once? <laughs> <laughs> we, were in Los, we were in Los Angeles, and we'd been doing some work through the day. We went to uh, a pub in the evening, a, a bar, mm. and there was a guy in there who was the waiter who was, like everybody in L.A., was a would-be actor or scriptwriter. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And um, he recognised Scott, uh, and he was all over Scott, and Scott said to him, I'm not famous, not compared to this man, pointing at me. <laughs> 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 this kid went into the kitchen to get his phone, Googled me, and then never left me alone for the next two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> his fault. God bless the internet. <laughs> Oh, That's you got it. I learned from the best, Alan. Um, <laughs> deflect to uh, you know to your friends. Self-preservation, <laughs> yep. survival. I've done that at a bar before, where you like somebody comes over and they're talking to you and they just won't stop talking, and then you're like, oh yeah, this is Joe over here, and then as soon as Joe starts, oh hey, how you doing? Boom, I'm out the door. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. I know that trick well. Mm-hmm. This is my wife, Janet. Talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you did that to me when I first reached out to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You guys had a question for Scott. Did have a question was, uh, for Scott. I had a question for Alan, but do we have one for Scott? Oh, no, we'll just ask Alan, and then we'll no, try to no, we'll try to remember Alan, the one for Scott. Bolt here, and you guys go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, what I was going to say to to our brother Scott though is, uh, we you wanted the jacket. We're, we're 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 definitely looking into a jacket with the sleeves and having like the no, bomber jacket. We're really looking into it. Swear to God. But we're gonna okay. make you we're gonna make you earn it. And one of the ways I'm gonna make you earn it is I'm gonna ask uh, Alan uh, what his take on Oak Island is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, you put me in a rather (laughs) difficult position because I I have worked on several episodes of Oak Island. I'll go so far as to say Mm -hmm. there is something very, very strange about Oak Island and its legends. Mm -hmm. The trouble is that it's one of those kind of places where the further you get into the mystery, the more mysterious the mystery becomes. And unlike the research that we tend to do, there's very little um, uh, written evidence from a mathematical point of view. It's difficult to deal with. So I... I reserve my judgment, and I won't say any more on the subject. <laughs> I will say this. I, I have become uh, very disillusioned with the whole thing, and I'm kind of riding where Joe is. Where I'm done watching. I'm done. I, I'm done. I, after done. this season, I'm, I'm over it. Like Honestly, my wife just makes fun of it. Like, we'll watch somebody it every was, night, yeah. but my my wife just starts. You know, it's, it's, it's like a running joke between us. It's at a so point now where I really think it's where they filmed the movie Holes with Shia LaBeouf. Or oh, that's actually a good movie. Where they just dug holes, and there's just stuff left there. I'm, 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 I'm not 
a believer as much yeah. anymore. Well, so. now I always fall back in the line now that we've uh, had Brother Scott on and he's given right. us his opinions. I could just say, well, I've got it from a fairly reliable source that there's yeah. nothing going on there. And I, I just leave it at that because he's a reliable source. But Brother mm-hmm. Scott, I'm really interested about these caves you were talking about. Which ones? You were talking about the caves where you believe that the Templars hid whatever they hid in them. Oh, well. I would love to hear more about that. Let's put it this way. We know that the the Templars brought treasure over. We know that um, a lot of it was recovered, not all of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of it uh, is still out there, we think. And, you know, what better place to hide something um, than in a cave, especially if it's being guarded by um, your native brothers Mm -hmm. and... Um, it's secret. It's in a very um, remote place, um, and we think that there's still some of those caves out there, and we're gonna we're we're looking for them. And I think I think eventually we're gonna find them. So I have another question for you. Uh, yeah. Janet was talking about uh, going to D.C. and and checking out her alignments and everything. And yeah. did you have to eat crow when she was proven correct? <laughs> I said that you made us go check the field. We had to go out yes. in the field. Well, no, no. Actually, it had nothing to do with eating crow. It had to right. do with being what I believe um, is a good scientist. Is mm-hmm. And, you know, right. Alan and Janet worked very hard, yeah. very closely for a long time, you know, to put this stuff together. And it was it was brilliant, really. And I would stick my nose in when they asked me to. Mm-hmm. But when it was all said and done, they came up with this amazing hypothesis and, and theory that, that made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I said, guys, test it. Go right. in the field. Go there on those times and dates and actually see what the shadow does. Mm-hmm. I was fully confident it would do mm-hmm. what uh, they thought. But... What better way to, you know, to, to prove your theory than to test it and have it bear out? Now, I will, I will say this, though. I do remember that one of the main alignments, which had to do with the uh, winter solstice, yeah, that, that Alan Butler had uh, basically put his life on and said, it will happen. And then when we decided to go test it, all of a sudden, Mr. Confident wasn't so confident. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have a ghetto, haven't you? <laughs> Alan, do you have a rebuttal to that? Even Galileo was wrong sometimes. <laughs> there you go. But, Janet, you know that was... Alan had nothing to be worried about. It was spot on. Right. That's right. And Janet, that must have given you a certain amount of gratification to actually have a theory and then show up and then, boom, it happened. That must have been kind of like a pretty cool moment for... We were, yeah, we were, we were incandescent, weren't we? All of us. Yeah. No, there was, I like, there was uh, messages flying backwards and forwards across the planet. Yeah. Like yeah. you wouldn't believe. Texting them and, and the poor guy... <laughs> The poor guy had to wait all day because this happened at 11 o'clock in the morning, and he's yeah. six hours ahead. Right. Yeah. So by the time, you know, it had been all day, and his wife, Kate, had told me later, he was like a cat on a hot tin roof. <laughs> <laughs> That's But funny. you know what? When the, when, the, when the alignment happened, and then we shared it with Alan, the word that he used to say how he felt was, God smacked. <laughs> mm. Yep, that's what you said. That's what you said. 
So, guys, what do you think the shadow is pointing to? Why is it pointing to the ellipse? What is, why is that a thing? Are you asking us why we think? Yeah. <sighs> I would have to say, so it's pointing at the ellipse you're talking about where it was like in that area of D.C. It's the park, correct? It's yeah. the park just south of the White House. I, my, I believe it's on page 197 of the book, American Nation of the Goddess. <laughs> Joe is, Joe's, Joe, he's cheating. Is this an open book test? No, but I can show, I no. can show you the alignment, what it looks like. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> so to me, the um, ellipse is clearly an egg, which is a symbol of fertility, which gets right back to, you know, birth and, and uh the symbol right. of the of the goddess, you know, fertility. Right. Certainly. Joe's Mister Esoteric. If you couldn't tell me, yeah. I would just say start digging. There's something buried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's something buried. Get start digging. Yeah. Well, if you started digging at this place, you'd end up in jail pretty yeah. quick. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely true. But Alan had an experience. Alan, tell him what happened when you were there one time digging around in, with your feet, sort of. Right? You the, weren't really the first, digging. Uh, the first time I was there with my co-writer at that time christopher knight we were at the center of the ellipse because mm. we were sure there's something underneath the center of the ellipse for all sorts of reasons mm -hmm. um so there we were just on our hands and knees looking at the ground there's there's supposed to be a stone well there is a stone in there a marker stone and we were trying to find it and as we were on our hands and knees suddenly there's a big noise there's a huge security helicopter hovering <laughs> up at the top of us. Oh, nice. So we Damn. got up and wandered off. The helicopter went. When it had gone, we came back. The helicopter came back. Mm -hmm. This happened three times until we got the message and thought, next time they might start shooting. So wow. we went away. But uh, they were interested in our interest. But in fairness, there's probably nothing at all odd about that because... You don't want people investigating the ground too much so close to the White House, I guess. Yeah. yeah. True. Could have been also, there was another problem. The film crew were Arabic. Oh, uh, that, that could be, yeah. 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 That may have had yeah. something to do yeah. with it. But yeah, it might throw some triggers. I mean, security's pretty tight around there. I can it is. Kind of it see is. It. Hey, guys, let me, let me tell you something that happened that is uh, directly um, connected to this conversation about Probably two and a half, three years ago, I um, I was contacted by a guy who worked um, with the Park Service police in Washington, D.C., and he was a fan of the show, and uh, I ended up going out to Washington by myself a couple of years ago, and he took me up in a helicopter, and we buzzed all around D.C., and it was fantastic, mm -hmm. but I asked him. I said, is there anything under the ellipse in D.C.? And he said, absolutely there is. And he said, um, I can't tell you everything, but what I can tell you is that in the movie National Treasure, mm -hmm. um, you know how they had, you know, there was that one scene where the president escaped and Nicolas Cage's character, you know, leads them out oh yeah the the um the book of secrets the second one where they're going underneath yeah, the, the tunnel yep. yeah there was this escape thing he said it's it's analogous to that so that if there is ever uh, a nuclear attack or some type of 
uh, a national emergency. They can get people out, and that's mm-hmm. one of the ways that they get out. I said, is there anything else under there? And he said, he, he, he made it very obvious that there was, but he didn't tell me what it was. Mm. Well, see, I have a theory just, just talking through all of this stuff. You know, that Washington, D.C. has always been referred to as a, a new Jerusalem of sorts. Right. And we know that the, you know, certain artifacts, including the Ark of the Covenant, um, you know, have, have left is, uh, Jerusalem or, or current modern day Israel and gone to other places, perhaps... Something yeah. of uh, some type of relic of that nature is uh, is underneath. Well, there. let's put it this. Let's put it this way. You know, you mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, and all I'm going to say is, um, what if the secret of the Ark of the Covenant isn't where it is, but how to make one? Yeah, we yeah. had this discussion yeah. with Brother Scott yeah. before. Yeah. Also, also, if you want to find. An Ark of the Covenant, even if it's not necessarily the Ark of the Covenant, Janet and I are pretty sure that you will find one underneath the National Cathedral in Washington D.C., which right. is, which we've only really just started to uncover as being one of the most remarkable buildings imaginable. Really, yeah. it's an exact copy of a 14th-century Gothic um, cathedral of the type that was built in France. Huh. And the altar, the stone from the altar, comes from the Holy Land. Some of it from hmm. Jerusalem, yeah. and some of it from Mount Sinai. Really? Oh. I did not know that. I did not know that it's either. the most incredible building, isn't it, Janet? It is, and you know it has a moon rock in one window. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That yeah, I did know. Awesome. I didn't know that either. I do believe there's also like a carving of uh, a Darth Vader head on one of the gargoyle yeah. heads or something like yes. that. Oh, and Mickey Mouse. Seriously? And it's accurate. I mean, it's factual. Seriously? Yeah. You know, he's he's looking at me like I'm I'm like insane here. But back me up on that. Oh, go ahead. Now I was gonna say George is looking at me like I'm insane here. But back me up. That's actually those things are actually there. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I know this because I I I worked on the cathedral after the earthquake happened about what three four years ago, and some of the uh, it was damaged during the earthquake, and some of the stone we actually looked at in our laboratory, and. it was Indiana limestone is what they used for, for most of the stone carvings. It's very detailed, hmm. fine-grained, and, and, and holds detail very well. But there's absolutely Mickey Mouse up there, Darth Vader, and other, um, you hmm. know, modern, uh, well-known characters. I don't think you they're going to let us you... dig there. Wow. No. <laughs> I, I was about to say challenge accepted. In the 14th yeah. century, they will have carved their equivalent of right. Mickey Mouse onto these yeah. places. So. Cultural yeah. Could you just imagine me and Joe showing up, shovel on her shoulder, just? Yeah, you and Joe, I could imagine. <laughs> so the joke's on us. All I'll these be, carvings. I'll be safely outside of prison, thank you. <laughs> but the joke's on us. All oh, these carvings at Rosalind Chapel could be that period's Darth Vader and Mickey Mouse. Mm. Well, I, 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 I think sure. that's Alan's point, and I think he's a hundred percent right. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, and the you know the Gothic cathedrals were. Pretty special. They were absolutely different. Nothing like them had ever been done before, and they were the, uh, engineering marvels for the day. My goodness, they, they, they each- may as well. Yeah, they may as well have, have been brought by aliens. They were so different. So we got to call Giorgio Wait, next. Sorry, have you been on that show too, Alan? Have you been on the? <laughs> <laughs> they, 
appeared within a generation. Mm-hmm. It and, was just incredible. And built by whom? I'm not saying uh, it's aliens, but... No, I mean, like, legitimately built, built by They were built by a, a group of people, um, brothers of... Um, uh, brothers of building uh, from France, um, who we think were synonymous with the Templars, mm-hmm. or who trained alongside the Templars. They certainly... They were travelling bands of stonemasons, and they certainly stayed in Templar preceptories wherever they went. Um, so they were kind of like the the building arm of the Knights Templars. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right, so we're getting toward the end here. So we're gonna. I want to ask, uh, what's your next project uh, for you, Alan, Janet, and Scott? What's uh, what's your next project? What's the next thing you're going to be researching or looking into? Janet and I are working on our next book. Awesome. Uh, which takes the story as you have it in the book you've got there, and because as often is the case, when we got to the end of that book, we hadn't got to the end of what we'd found. We just pushed on and pushed on. And now we have even more incredible stories to tell, like about the cathedral, for example. And also, we want to mention specifically what we were talking about earlier on in this conversation, uh, how Freemasonry started, um, modern Freemasonry started, uh, in buildings on the streets of Edinburgh, Mm. Um, and other places in Scotland, how it came about, why it came about, and how it's related to the Venus families. Is that a, a good pricey, Janet? Yes, I would say so. And and as I mentioned earlier, we keep finding signs and symbols that indicate that the Venus families were very much a part of this whole development of Freemasonry as well, because if, if you guys pay attention, and I know Scott has paid attention in ritual, that he also feels that the goddess is is there, carefully veiled, always protected, but always present. No, no doubt about it, 100%. <clears throat> and I will tell you this, guys, um, the last, the last um, uh, Masonic anything that I attended was uh, a Knights Templar, the final Knights Templar degree in the Scottish and the York Rite, mm. and Order of the Templar. Uh, one of and and I had the honor of doing the sword lecture, mm-hmm. which um, was pretty profound. Yep. But I will tell you that there was one other lecture that was the final lecture, and let's just say. There was a reference to the Morning Star. Ah, yes, that would be the Baldrick, and that is my specialty. We know the one. Yep, we know. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> if that's not a reference to Venus and the goddess, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Which, is, strangely enough, is where this conversation started. Yes, uh, it did. Mm, in that yep. lodge that you guys are in. Yeah. Are you constantly yeah. concentrating your lodge as the Morning Star Lodge or something? What did you call it? No, our our main mother Masonic Lodge is Morning Star Lodge number 47. Uh, oh. There used to be a Royal Archmasons chapter, which is... So, so the three degrees of Freemasonry, basically, you know, they tell you the story. Hiram Abiff and all that stuff, you go through that. But then the, the, the chapter 
used to be well part of the kind York, of, it right. kind of extends yeah. the story of what happened after the master mason degree mm-hmm. so yeah. i just got the green light that we are now a chapter under dispensation from our grand chapter and we chose the name because the original name the original name was evening star chapter number 47 okay well morning star evening star you're still talking about the same thing absolutely absolutely (laughs) i actually thought that was quite interesting when i found out that this was called evening star way back in the day i'm like wow well they're just going right along the lines there (laughs) something right by the way guys the evening star right now is um as bright as she's going to be for the next eight years actually the the closest that Venus gets to Earth was on May 4th, but mm-hmm. she's still bright and beautiful as an evening star right now. The only downside is as the days get longer, she has a chance to descend before you can really see her. Mm. About a month ago, she was so bright and beautiful earlier and higher in the sky, obviously, because the days were shorter. But she's still out there and she's still gorgeous. Um, if, you're, if your star or your sky is clear... You could see her tonight. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was pretty funny. I have to give you a little bit of credit, Brother Scott, because uh, I was outside a couple of days ago with my kids, and we were doing a fire outside or whatever. And uh, my son says, wow, that star is so bright. I'm like, that's not a star. That's, that's Venus. Star. He goes, how do you know? I said, I know. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Mason. So, um, can, I, can I show you guys something that, to me, is one of the most beautiful images I've ever seen? I found it recently. And I'm just going to put it up here. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Now, obviously, you know, the colors of Mary Magdalene are orange and green, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, and, but I do know. And you see her arms and her hands are making the M signs. Yeah, wow. Double M's. But there's something else more significant. There's more going on in there. But do you see that? that crescent i was gonna say that looks like an ellipse on the bottom there yeah well what most people don't realize is venus is actually a crescent it goes through phases like the moon oh no it has phases like the moon but it is always a crescent because its orbit is inside of us so we're never going to see it fully illuminated unless it's on the other side of the sun right and then we can't see it but my point is, is that when you see images of crescents sideways like this, it's typically the moon. Mm-hmm. But it tips her up, it's her. No kidding. Oh, I did okay. not know that. That's really yep. cool. And isn't that uh, that crescent with the, the tips up like that, isn't uh, that part of the uh, Shriners logo? Well, it's uh, part of the Islamic tradition. Yeah. It absolutely like it, yeah. is. Yeah. So what does yeah. that tell you? It's another veiled reference to the goddess. They, yeah. Also, the crown of Isis. Yeah, the crown uh, of Isis as well. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right, boys. Before we let uh, Alan, Janet, and Scott go, and we shut down the podcast, we have a toast to do. We have a toast. And uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, being Kenny, being the first time back up oh here, brother, worship brother Ken, to. he's going to lead it, and we're going to toast uh, Alan, Janet, mm-hmm. and uh, brother Scott. Yeah. Uh, Yet again for coming on. Number three for Brother Scott. Number three. Number three. Number three. Two more. All right. Alan, Janet, and Brother Scott, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It was very nice meeting you, and this was a great episode. I had a great time today. And so, this is to you. Brethren, right hand to arms. To arms. Ready. Ready. Aim. Aim. Fire, good fire, fire all. 
together, brothers. Vivat, vivat, vivat. All right. So uh, I think thank, we're, uh, thank you so much. It's been tremendous. Oh, this has been our pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, I just recently learned that uh, the Brits they do their Masonic toasts completely different oh, than yeah. us. Oh. So that was kind of interesting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Brother Scott, just one thing I want to throw out there is, so this is number three. On five, you get a jacket. You know that jacket yeah. can only be presented in person, correct? Mm. Like, it can't be uh, in the mail. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Where are you guys located? We're in Connecticut, Connecticut. but we'll meet you in D.C. The next time you're in D.C., we'll no. meet you there. We're at the tower. I was at oh, yeah, Newport that's, Tower. That, Absolutely. Yep. Yep. That, that's only about two and a half hours from I've us. I've been to the Newport Tower. I can't tell you how many times. And I, it's, it blows my mind every time. You know what I keep looking for? The, the Cumberlandite stone. That he was talking about. You don't about know where it, is? where it is? I couldn't find it. I was looking for it, and I couldn't find it. There's the alignment. Through the window. Wow. It's at 8 o'clock. That's on the winter solstice. At 8 o'clock in the morning, it goes through the south window and the west window, and that's a picture taken at exactly 8. At 9 o'clock, it frames out and illuminates the egg. Wow. By the way, guys, did you get um, did you get the book and the uh, patches? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, got we, got patches. we got the patches and two coins. Cha challenge coins, yep. Nice. Oh, yeah, okay, we've got good, the uh, the book is good. on display. Right? Yeah, we got the book right up here. And Joe, what book is that? Come. That is uh, America, Nation of the Goddess by Alan Butler and Janet Walter. <laughs> Joe is our uh, resident plug guy. I do all the plugs for the show. <laughs> if you want me to do a live read for you, I'll do a live read for you. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. But uh, no, how cool would that be? You know, if he gets his uh, fifth episode in and we all yeah. meet up at the Newport Tower and oh. present him with his... Uh, as long as he it's can almost get like a past the fence. Because I, I always want to jump the fence, but I fear I just get the shit kicked out of me by the by the cops. Well, nearby, we all, so. they but can't we, catch all of us. You know what? We could, get, we could get the key from the city. I know the guy that... Uh, worked with him for years, and if we want to go inside, that that won't be difficult. Okay, oh. Scott's our in. Uh, he's our in. Yeah. All right. This is going to be fun. I can't. Uh, everybody, I'll see you again. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. Alan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It. All right, uh, we're going to shut this down, and then uh, we'll keep you on the line, Janet and Scott. If you still want to talk for a couple minutes, or if you guys got something to do, we can let you go no, as no. well. We have our son coming over uh, in about coming? about half hour. Well, he hasn't said he's not coming. <laughs> well, it's our son's 30th birthday today oh happy oh, birthday to happy him. birthday to happy him. birthday yeah, all right who's uh who's cooking tonight it's raining out and who knows <laughs> who's cooking tonight well that that's that's part of the whole dilemma because <laughs> we're going to get takeout food but oh there you go I, we, haven't, we haven't got ourselves organized yet we gotcha. have to do that after this well then we will uh, to come over i'd love to I'll go get the food, and we'll have a little, you know. This is Grant. He's a structural engineer, so we're very proud of him. Yeah. Happy All birthday, birthday. Yeah, cool. yeah, uh, Brother yeah. Scott, is that the son that came out to uh, Massachusetts with you when you did yes, the uh, speech at Lexington? Lecture. Yep, okay, yes, yep. I met him. Correct. He actually. Uh, That's won. the only son I have. He I took won. my money when I bought your book. I wanted to go <laughs> so bad, and, of course, you know, Grand Commander. Uh, oh, yeah, no, it was. All uh, right. God forbid you blow something off, they rip your head off. So, but yep. anyway, uh, you know what? They just this week canceled our grand session. In uh, it was going to be in Kensington, Minnesota, and Darwin Ullman and I were going to lead 
be the hosts for oh. everybody to show them the farm, mm-hmm. take yep. them to the Rootstone awesome. Museum. And I was really looking forward to that. They put it off till next year, but mm. uh, I'm disappointed. And, and a lot of brothers have said, geez, I was really looking forward to it. It was sold out. <sighs> I mean, you know, the, the venue was, was full. Man, God, that sucks. Yeah. Yep. Well, when things but get you, back to normal, well, stupid. You guys virus. had to cancel things. I've probably had, I oh, bet you yeah. I've had a dozen lectures canceled because of the virus. We had to cancel. We were going with the oh, the widow's sons. We were Shriner. going up to upstate New York. The Shriner yeah. thing. We had a bunch yeah, of we things. Had a we had a couple of things we were going we had a to mix, unfortunately. But hey, but the blessing is you have more time for us. Yes. That's yep. <laughs> <laughs> true. I want that jacket, so let's set something up again. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll get Brother Rafferty on it. He's going to stack the deck for us. Yes, he will. All right. We're going to let you guys go then. Yeah, enjoy Thank your you dinner. Again. Happy birthday to Grant. Yep. Mm-hmm. Enjoy your dinner. Happy birthday. And we'll talk to you guys later. All righty. All righty. Take care, Bye-bye. guys. Take care. Hey, you guys. That was a lot of fun. That yeah. was still alive. Still up, but uh, right, we're just gonna do we're just gonna do our I outro and then kicked off on. Uh, yeah, we on did. Facebook. Yeah, we did. I, oh, but okay. it's good. It was at the end, so it's fine. Gotcha. If you want to catch the rest of it, you're gonna have to listen. Yeah, I mean, it was right after the two bathroom think, humor. Anyway. Oh God! Here we All go. Right. For the Freemasons podcast, I am Right Worshipful Brother George Marjorie signing off. Worshipful Brother Joe signing off. And Worshipful Brother Ken signing off. Have a good night. Sayonara. Everyone. Good night, y'all. <laughs>